It's funny, I, I feel like I'm a little bit more excited than normal. You could blame Tim Horton for that if you'd like. <laughs> but man, seeing, I, I just had this great week of church planting and study. And I, I like history. Anybody else really enjoy history? Like of all the subjects, of all the classes you did not skip, is anybody, like you just went to history all the time, can I see your hand? How many of you guys skipped algebra because that was for smart people? But history, that was, because it was story time. You got to hear stories. So uh, here's a story. My favorite story, my favorite Christmas movie of all time is called It's a Wonderful Life. Is there anybody here that has not seen It's a Wonderful Life? Because if so, you're, you're, I'm just suspicious of where you're actually from. I'm just... I said that about two weeks ago. We had a meeting, and I said, so I said anybody not seen the, the movie It's a Wonderful Life? And two people raised their hand. I said, communist spies. Remember, I fought in the Cold War. Guess where they were from? Russia. Oh, yeah, it was great. We like the sermon, but we no spy. Like, I'm so sorry, man. I know you're not. I'm just, it was a joke that was funny to most of us and, and insulting to some. So, yeah, I, I love the movie. It's a story about a guy named George Bailey who is reaching kind of that midlife season that some of us are, are familiar with. You go, you know, I had all these dreams when I was younger. I was going to go places and build things and see the world and get on a cattle boat and go all the way to Europe and work my way across the oceans and railroad down across Asia and into Europe. And it just, I, and, and, and little by little, my life slipped away. And now look at me. I'm living in the same town I was born in. I'm working my, my, the family job that I said I'd never work, and, and I, everybody's got to live their life, but I was 4F, so I couldn't go to war, I, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that, and I, I just have had a, a terrible life, and there's at one point where he, he decides that his life is no longer worth living, and it's into that, that drama that God sends one of the greatest movie characters of all time, an angel by the name of Clarence. Some of you guys know angels should have names like Clarence. <laughs> I could snuggle with, with Clarence, you know what I mean? Uh, he, he's got cheekbones like the Wizard of Oz. You know what I mean? He's, he's a dear man, and he decides that the way to save George from jumping off the bridge to kill himself in the icy waters below is for him to do it first so that George jumps in to rescue him. And into that, Clarence begins to work the problem. How do I get George to want to live, to realize that what he's done, who he is, has had a profound impact? I, I think you'll enjoy this clip. It might be even a good little remembrance of your childhood here. I said, I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. <clears throat> You've got your wish. You've never been born. How many of you guys were honestly a little concerned about the length of his gown? I saw that when I'm like, oh, is, can I show that in church? It's like, okay, it's just knees. It's, it's all right. Uh, and and uh, so I want to ask that question this morning. What if you were never born? What if you, what if the people around you just got to never put in your life? What, what if you were never born? What if, uh, what about the people that have touched your life? Jesus? What about the Sunday school teacher when you were five? What about the youth pastor that they called you, you know, out to the woodshed when you were 15? What about the, the, the friend that counseled your marriage when you were 25? What about the family that, that helped you when you were 35 in between jobs or on strike? What, what would your life be like without them? And what about the life, uh, what, how would your life be different if a few people had said no when God said go? It, it is shocking 
the moments. I've already say this, and we say this a lot, but I, I don't want to you know, belabor it, but basically, you know, name 10 sermons that have changed your life. I have preached thousands now. This is my 30th year of ministry. Um, I've preached thousands of messages, and I think some I could name maybe five or six or seven that have been instrumental, and I could say have been anchors for my life, but I would never expect anybody here to say, oh, you know, the why is greater than what message, oh, that, you know, orphans to heirs, really, oh, man, not enough, just enough, more than enough, but I, I think if I were to say, how many guys can name 10 people that have changed your life? There's not a person in this room that would go, I, I can name 10 people that changed my life. The hard part would be rooting it down to about 10 people, is that right? So, we do have this profound effect. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about this. We're going to talk about our heritage, where we come from. We're going to talk about our honor and the honor that God has given to us historically, but then contemporarily and, and, and into the future. And then it, talking about taking our turn, because I believe every generation has a, a gift of responsibility, a gift of anointing, a gift of action, a gift of faith. You are God's workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. So if he prepared them in advance for you, then corporately he prepared them in advance for us, and globally he prepared them in advance for all of us. And it starts with this. Look at this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them. He's getting ready to ascend to heaven. He says, all authority. How much authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always. How long is he with us? To the very end of the age. When the last breath is drawn, God will still be there to watch over it. His promise of presence is, is incredible. I want to take you on a, on a journey of our heritage. Today, I want to talk to you about where we come from, and, and maybe it might help you to understand. It might help you to value. It might help you to see where you fit. How many of you guys like this like DNA study where you, or you go back in your genealogies and you find out that your great-great-great-grandfather's name was Adolf? It's a little disappointing, but it's so cool. You know what I mean? Like my great-great-great-grandfather, Wiegand, uh, or, or Wiegand was, uh, was his name was Adolf. And you're kind of like, oh, I could have been Harvey. You know what I mean? Something, a German guy named Adolf in your lineage. It makes you nervous. Anybody else, you know, on the Patterson side, I was reading. I said, hey, I just got this from my sister. It's where I come from. And, and Pastor Collins, let me read this. And I'm reading the last will and testament of five generations back, Patterson's. I'm like, this is my mother's father's side. And I'm reading it. And all of a sudden, in the will, it's talking about, and I leave to my wife her favorite slave, Ellie. I'm like, oh, I just read that to Pastor Carl, you know. And he starts laughing. I actually stopped and he said, he said, finish the sentence. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, dude. He's like, you laugh, like, don't be sorry to me. This is generations ago. I'm like, uh, and, and how many guys don't want to know where you come from? <laughs> Just, you know, Jesus cleansed my bloodline, no Adolfs, no slave owners. But, but in our history, it really begins in, in about the early 1900s, actually about 1900 to 1901, a guy by the name of Parham, P-A-R-H-A-M, Parham, at a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. They had an extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit. He was teaching, he was lecturing, he was telling them about the book of, of Acts, and, he, and he, it was Christmas time, it was time for the professors to go home, but some students would stay, and he said, listen, those of you who are staying, I don't want idle hands, I, I want prayer meetings, I want worship, and I want you to study the book of Acts, but don't proceed in the book of Acts any farther than that which you have experienced. Well, he had believed up to that point that, you know, God was a holy God, but that the gifts of the Spirit, and all the, the apostolic offices, and the prophetic gifts, and tongues, and interpretation, all that had passed away with the apostolic age, but the 
students, being ignorant of the traditions of, of Parham, began to read the book of Acts. They came to Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit was poured out. They saw in Acts chapter 1, you receive power. How many of you guys know there's, there's power in my microphone this morning? You receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And then they say, well, you know, we haven't received anything that we think is all that powerful. We've received knowledge. We've got the Word of God, but we're not healing the sick, casting out demons, you know, cleansing lepers. Like, we don't, we don't know anything about that. They get to Acts chapter 2, and they say, okay, well, the reason they can do it after here is because they received something from the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So they started an all-day, all-night prayer meeting. How many of you guys have ever been in a lecture like that? Or it feels like all day, all night. But it's a prayer meeting, and God's beginning to move on people's lives. Shortly, January 1st, like in the, in the first two minutes of January 1st, 1901, one of the students is filled with, with this thing, this power of the Spirit that they read about in Acts 1 and Acts 2. And then subsequently, by the time the professors come back, over a dozen of the students have had this profound, dramatic, powerful, irreverent, glorious, terrifying gift take place in their lives. Well, Parham comes back and investigates and finds out he believes that this is genuine, and he begins to teach on this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, sanctification, salvation, and it, with, with a new wave of that. And one of the students that is a part of that is this guy right here, William Seymour, who lost his left eye to smallpox as a child. He's the, he's the son of an emancipated slave who fought in the Civil War on the side of the North with the, uh, the Maine, uh, the, the Afri Africana Regiment in Maine. Um, glorious story, glorious history. He died in Louisiana, unfortunately, of diseases while fighting in the war. But his son, then being kind of a destitute orphan of, of an emancipated slave, began to travel and look for work. He ended up in Indiana. He ended up then at Parham's College in Topeka, Kansas, and he heard about this. And without experiencing it, he, he understood and he saw with his own eyes that there's powerful things that God could do. How many of you know that we haven't seen all that God can do? So he had that same thing that we know. Like, I know there's, I'm not saying you know, what we have is wrong or bad, but I know that there's something more. And so he began to kind of seek for this, and he got an invitation. He was substitute preaching for somebody. There was a guest from Los Angeles that was in town, heard him speak, went back to L.A. and said, we should send him, a, a, you know, William, an invitation to, so to train fair, come on out. So he came out there, and he preached for a week until this glorious thing happened. He was, he was fired from his position of preaching because they didn't like some of his doctrine. And so he, he didn't know what to do but pray. The guy was a man of prayer. He prayed from five to seven hours a day. He said, gee, what's the secret of the power of the Holy Spirit? Pray for five to seven hours, and I bet you you find some of those answers in that prayer time. And the prayer meeting that he and another brother were leading, the brother had to go to work, and, but he, he, was, he had no job, he had no money, he had no, so he just, he just sat there and prayed, God, I don't know what to do. Well, the legend of this man's fiery prayer life began to grow, and so people said, can we join you, can we join you? And so his prayer meeting became their prayer meeting on Bonnie Bray Street until there was a three-day outbreak where people were just experiencing these amazing gifts. People were being healed. People are being set free from things. People are experiencing the power of God, not just like I believe God's powerful, but I can't deny the power of God working on my life. And so that meeting became so large that the neighbors began to complain. Anybody relate to neighbors that complain about large gatherings at their home? I'm just saying that I've heard, heard somebody have neighbors like that, although I don't know, but I've heard issues like that. And, and um, so they ended up going to an old feed store. It was a Methodist church that became a food store. It became a feed store. It became a stable house. There was like animals, dirt floor, wooden altar, 
And uh, that was on Azusa Street, a two-block street in Los Angeles, right by downtown, known today as the Azusa Street Revival. He preached it for three years, him and others. It was an integrated, interracial, you know, it's Los Angeles, so the Chinese and the, the Hispanic and the, the African-American, and they're all coming together. It's, they never said there's going to be a black preacher tonight, there's going to be an Asian preacher tonight, there's going to be a Mexican preacher. They just said, Brother Jones, Brother Smith, Brother Brown is going to be preaching tonight. There was no, um, there were women that preached. It was really a radical thing, and for three years, the world traveled, and not just the United States, the world traveled to Azusa Street, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of them missionaries. Many of them became missionaries. They came home. They, they found out about what's going on. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. They went back to Asia, back to Africa, back to Mexico, back to Brazil, back to wherever they came from, preaching this beautiful message that God's not done doing cool things. He eventually married the woman in the upper right-hand corner there. Parham is next to him there, and uh, this is all still about 1906. And you notice, again, the, the different colors, the different races, the different genders. That's the preaching cadre of the Azusa Street Revival. You can see how it begins to grow. Isn't everybody dressed nicely? I just, I love it. I, I don't ever want to have to dress like that, but I love it when people do. This is in front of a church that they eventually you know, started founding and so forth. There are some people, again, you see the, the, the genders, the races, so forth. Now let's move forward about 47 years uh, from the forming of the Assemblies of God Church, we're part of the Assemblies of God Fellowship. And on uh, November, I'm sorry, October 19th, 1986, I memorized things really well. Do you see that? I did that all by memory. Pastor and, and Sister Burke came, and uh, they did these amazing things. Before the building, that was the old stone church. It was built in the 1860s. So just prior to the Civil War, people from this area would... Uh, put rocks in their buggies and drive their horse and buggy into town, drop off their pile of rocks, and as the rocks began to gather, they began to build that building. It was the first Baptist church now on Leroy Street, kind of halfway between, what, the Chinese joint and the, and the new construction by the, by the train tracks there. And uh, we got it in 1963. They came in 1961. In 1963, they bought that building. See that big concrete wall there that's kind of to the left of it? I'll take a handheld mic. Anybody that wants to bring that to me, I'll get rid of this. That concrete wall is not there because it's pretty. It's actually not. It's there simply because the wall was caving in and we didn't want to build anything else. So that was, that was the retaining wall. Thank you, my lovely assistant, Vanna. All right, go ahead and mute my mic then, please, if you would. And we'll go to this one. Did he do that great? Seamless. Let's give our sound man a great round of applause. There it is. So in, in the early 1980s, there was this call. And I don't know if you can grasp this. I, I got this differently this morning than most of you will. Um, Pastor and Sister Burke were pastoring the church about the same amount of time Dean and I have been leading here and serving here. To go from the downtown, the consistent, the known, to go from the comfortable, and they killed, you know, they killed all the pigeons that lived in the belfry. They cleaned out literally the three feet of dead pigeons and excrement that were up there. They dealt with all the issues, and, and it's in the middle of a, of a growing city. And suddenly God began to put something on Pastor Burke's heart to move outside of the downtown area to a, a farming area by some old road that was rarely ever traveled on called US-23. US-23 was two lanes. It's now known today as Old-23. I mean, because we're traveling Old-23. It wasn't a freeway. It was just that. And there wasn't an elementary school. There wasn't a junior high school. There wasn't a high school across the street. And, and in saying, I feel like God wants us to move outside the downtown. I don't know why. I just believe God wants us to have acreage. There, there needs to be this vision to grow, and we're landlocked. We have no more parking. We have no, we, so we're going to grow. And it, and it caused kind of a, a little bit of an uproar. How many guys know people like what we've been doing? They don't necessarily like what we're going to do. 
And people say, how many guys, you know, want change? Everybody goes, I want change. How many guys want to change? Nobody raises their hand. Nobody wants to change. They just want change. And so he said, I feel led to move out there. And a substantial portion of our congregation went and started another church under a different leader. We're not going there. You're too, you know, you didn't ask my opinion. You're a dictator. I mean, if you knew Pastor Burke, he wasn't a dictator, but he was a bulldozer. And there, there is a difference. There is a difference. A bulldozer only moves dirt. So there's a, whereas dictators move everybody. So that happened. And here's Pastor Burke in his, uh, his coveralls his old Ford backhoe, they're hanging trusses, and that's the ex uh, exterior of the building. You see, that's kind of our prayer garden. If you, look, if you kind of you pull down the front of the uh, facility right now, there'd be the volleyball court that's up on the top of that hill, all those trees. Look how small they are. Look how old you are when you see how small they are, you know? The bricks are different colors. And so that's Pastor and Sister Burke. They pastored here for 33 years. They, they founded a Pentecostal church in the middle of a community that didn't know what to do with them. They were as tough and as tender a people as you've ever met in your life. How many guys ever had the privilege of knowing the Burks? Can I see your hand? You knew them. A good number of us have. So now look at how tough and dirty and rough he is. And then we got new pastors. <laughs> the dude even had more hair than I did. It's just not fair. You know what I'm saying? My wife and I and our children came here in 1995. Yes, I looked just like that in 1995. And look how much younger I looked today. No, that was about three weeks ago we took that picture. And uh, it's been such a joy. This is a groundbreaking from 2001. You might recognize John Harkness is there. The guy in the middle looking down, that old guy with a tie on, that's Dave Carlton. <laughs> Dave Carlton looks younger today than he did in, in the year 2000. I, he was doing his imitation of like a, a dying man then. I don't know what was going on. The guy with some hair and glasses next to Dave, anybody know who that is? Jeff, Jeff Waltz. Yeah, look at that. How many of you guys know Jeff had hair? There was a day. He was born bald. Well, I'll die bald, but he had here. There's Jesse Moutre. Uh, there's, there's uh, you know, Jason Barda, our youth pastor time. Jesse, Pastor Burke. And there I am with a full head of hair. How many of you guys know that God can heal my head? Amen. And my wife hasn't changed a bit. It's not fair. Real hard. Mike Pigover, during the middle of the prayer, Mike just got out his camera, decided to take pictures, you know, that kind of stuff. And so we broke ground. We went from a 288-seat auditorium to like a 450-seat auditorium. And I remember when we built this building, it was like, we, we built it too big. It'll never get full. I'm the village idiot. They're going to fire me. We were 29 and 26 when we came to pastor this church. Uh, there was 99 people our first Sunday, and, and uh, beautiful people. I, it's funny. I used to say 99 of the meanest Christians God ever said. But it, I just being funny, they, they were wonderful, sweet, kind people once you got to know them. Um, not necessarily at first, but once you got to know them, they were. They were wonderful people. And within a year, we had to go to double services. And within a year after that, we had to go to triple services. And after that, we said, we just got to start planting churches. So we started planting churches, parenting, partnering, planting uh, other churches and congregations in our area. And then in 2000, what would it be? 2000, whatever, 2011, we did the remodel. That's where so many things changed. That's kind of a picture of what it looked like back in the day uh, with it coming together. We had to destroy a wing of the put in the whole foyer way. How many of you guys remember the old, long, narrow, dark hallway called the nursery? Now, that's a comfortable place to put your kids. The kids are like, I don't want to go down the scary hallway. It's okay. It's a church. It's like, that doesn't help, you know. <laughs> and then today, kind of a view of, of what we're doing today to some degree uh, and a wonderful view of it. And, I, and I, there's been a lot said about just the condition of the church in America. How many of you guys have heard of two groups, the largest, fastest growing 
groups of Christianity today are called the nuns and the duns. Have you heard those phrases? The duns are people that I'm just, I'm just done going to church. I've just seen so many bad things, and I hear one message, but I see another one live, and I'm just done with organized religion. And then the nuns, the people that say, you know, I want to become a strict Catholic. No, N-O-N-E-S. I want to I become, I, I just, I don't want to become anything. I just have no religious affiliation. And we have statisticians that are saying that America is in deep trouble because of the increase of people that no longer claim any affiliation with a local church or no affiliation with religion. Now, whereas those numbers are in some ways factual, how many guys know that, that, you know, figures lie and liars figure? You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a couple things that are happening. One is uh, 25, 30 years ago to say I'm a Christian, we say, are you a Christian? They say, well, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not an atheist. My grandma goes to church. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Well, those people don't answer that question that way anymore. They say, no, I have no religious affiliation. The other thing I think that's going on is there used to be a benefit. If you wanted to sell insurance in a small town, you better belong to a good church because that was your network of people, right? There was a business. Was a but now there really isn't. As a matter of fact, there might be a price to pay for being a committed Christian. So that's changed. So people don't answer on surveys the way they used to. So I don't know that we can prove in any way that, that the overall Protestant or Catholic or liturgical church movement is up or down. But I do know this. As part of the Assemblies of God, we keep strict records. And so I've got good news for you. We are growing in the United States. Over the last 10 years, our fellowship, including the Molnix baby that's now screaming in the nursery, over the last decade, the Assemblies of God has grown by 12% to over 3.2 million adherents in the United States. And, and right now, currently, one out of every 100 American people, people that live in the United States of America, currently attend an Assemblies of God church. So, yeah, well, man, well, the church is in big trouble. I don't know where you're looking, but you're not looking here. I know that they love to talk about it on CNN. I know they love to talk about it on Fox News. They love to talk about it on NPR. They love to talk. But the fact is that in a, in a declining religious environment, the Assemblies of God, the part that we're a part of, it, it's grown by 12% over the last decade, one of the greatest decades of harvest in the history of our fellowship. So I don't know where they're getting it from. Uh, the other thing is that we are a young and diverse group of people in the Assemblies of God. You didn't know this, but 53% of us are under the age of 35. Is that shocking? And, and we believe in birth control, by the way. So this is just, this is not organic growth. This is, I mean, this is not everybody's got 12 kids. So 53% of us are under the age of 35, and more than 43% of us are known, you know, statistically as ethnic minorities. So we're a diverse group. We're a young movement. Um, we're global. And by global, I mean Whatever's happening in the United States is multiplied exponentially outside the United States. Globally, there are over 69 million adherents who worship in more than 370,000 Assemblies of God churches. You say, well, is that a lot? I, I, is that a lot of people? For every McDonald's you see anywhere in the world, there are 10 Assemblies of God churches in the world. So is there a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. So don't believe the news. When you hear that the church is failing, it's a post-Christian era you know, it's time to probably bail on things. It's, it's more cool to be non-religious than to be religious. You, you would be leaving something that God is doing in a way that the world has not seen much of in any generation. Matter of fact, once you look at this, in 100 AD, there's approximately 181 million people on earth with about half a million born-again Christians. Now, when I say born-again, I, I have to be very careful. These are people that just like, I was, I was born and baptized Christian because I'm not Muslim. These are people that have made a decision. Historians estimate that's the number of people uh, that were alive on the planet, and that's the number of people that we know of because of persecutions, because of historiographies and so forth that would tell us that. So, 
360 to 1 ratio. So for every 360 people on the planet, one of them was a believer in 100 AD as the Bible was being canonized, as the last of the apostles were dying. They'd made a tremendous impact from not a single follower of Christ, but in one lifetime, one out of every 360 people is a believer. It's incredible. Within the next 900 years into 1,000 AD, the, the Earth's population is an estimated 270 million people on Earth, with about a million of them being born again. Or again, we see it goes from 360 to 1 to 269 people with every, to, to one believer. If you go fast forward another 500 years, in AD 425, I'm sorry, in AD 425, in AD 1500, there's about 425 million people on the Earth with about 5 million known born-again Christians. So we've gone from 360 to 1, 269 to 1, and 1,500 years later, 1,400 years later, we're at 84 to 1. So for every 85 people on the planet, one of them is a Christian. Fast forward to the year 1900. Now understand this, the printing press, um, the media, the newspaper, the, the Bible, missionary, the ability to travel increases exponentially the effectiveness of the gospel on the planet. 1900 A.D., 1.6 billion people on the earth with about 40 million people being born again. It's gone to 40 to 1, from 360 to 1 to 40 to 1. 1950, how many of you guys were alive in 1950? Let me say it louder. How many of you guys were alive in 1950? Good. That's a joke. I was born in 65. Uh, there's about 2.5 billion people on the earth with about 80 million born-again Christians. Now the ratio's gone from 40 to 1 to 30 to 1. Are you guys seeing what's happening? Let me continue on. Uh, in 1980, now how many guys were alive in 1980? Okay. How many guys are not born yet in my story? Okay, good. Uh, there's 4.5 billion people on the earth with 275 million of them being born-again Christians. It's now gone from 30 to 1 to 15 to 1 in that short amount of time, in 30 years. 1990, we have television, radio, uh, internet that Al Gore invented, all starting to, to happen here. 5.2 billion people on earth with 500 million born-again Christians. The ratio is now down to 9 to 1. Now, the latest statistics would be like 2,000. Um, they're still doing some tallying, and it's difficult to understand. But I will tell you this. Globally, the church is growing by 80,000 new believers per day. No, it's a post-Christian nation. It's a post-Christian. No, no. Just, just the one fellowship that we're a part of has grown by 12% in the last decade. 80,000 people on the face of the earth gave their life to Jesus today, and they started 510 new churches all over the world today. By the time we go to bed tonight, 510 new churches will have begun because of the growth of people being saved and the need for new churches. Let's just talk about Africa for a second. Are you guys doing okay? You getting this okay? In Africa alone, the church has grown from 143 million in 1970, which was about 38% of the population. By 2020, they're estimating it'll be at 680 million, or basically one out of every two people in Africa will be a born-again believer. That's in the midst of war. That's in the midst of, of bombings. That's in the midst of uh, pestilence and plague and Ebola. People are coming to Christ in record numbers on the continent of Africa. Let's talk about Asia. In Asia, Christianity is growing more than twice as fast as people are being born. People are being born again twice as often as people are being born. It's incredible. And it's seen the number of the Christians double since 1970. The largest congregations in the world are in Asia. Uh, in Seoul, Korea alone, the number one and number two largest congregations are in one town in South Korea, Seoul, Korea. Pastor Cho, Pastor's Yoido, Full Gospel Worship Center, and Assembly of God Church, and their congregation, last I heard, was the equivalent. Now, now hear me. 
How many of you guys have ever been to University of Michigan Stadium? Seats 107,000 people. Every Sunday in their multiple video venues and their multiple campuses and their multiple whatever, it would be the same as filling and emptying Michigan Stadium eight times. And you're only allowed to come to church every third Sunday because there's that many people in that congregation. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The, so in other words, you say, well, the, the greatest days. No, no, no. The greatest days are now. The greatest days are here. The greatest things God's ever done. Jesus said, these things you shall do, and even, come on, greater things. We're in those days where the greater things are happening. Now, this one's going to blow you away. Missionaries to the Islamic world report that there have been more Muslims who have come to know Jesus since the 9-11 attacks than in the 14 previous centuries combined. And they're coming to Jesus in some of the most wonderful, wacky, weird ways. People are waking up having had this vivid dream of a man dressed in white who said, go see a guy down on, you know, you know whatever street, and, and he'll walk up to you. And they go and they sit there because this dream is so vivid. And a guy walks up led by the Holy Spirit and says, Jesus has sent me to you, just like in the book of Acts with Saul that became Paul the Apostle. The, the dreams, we, literally, our missionaries to the Islamic world are praying, God, give people dreams. Give people dreams. They're not allowed to speak. They're not allowed to evangelize. If they get caught doing stuff, they'll, they'll be deported or much worse physically. And so they're saying, God, give people dreams and lead us by the Spirit. There's a, a whole initiative called the Live Dead Project. So we live as if today's our last day because we understand that if we get caught doing this and those we minister to get caught doing this, they'll be executed. They live as if dead people amongst a society that does not want them there. It's illegal for them to be there. So how can this miraculous growth be explained? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to win. And I think 9 to 1 was where our generation started, but it's not where our generation is going to end. Because 80,000 people, 510 churches every day are coming online and doing great things. Now, I will say this to you. It's not all good news. I'm not going to paint this picture like everything is awesome, but I will say this. Those who say yes when God says go are making a difference. And those who say no when God says go, they just fade into the background. It's kind of like you know, this, uh, this thing here, there's, there's those who say yes to God, and there's, there's those who say no to God. That really is the only two type of people that have ever been. Is that true or false? You guys see that? The moment where God says go, I say, yeah, I'd love to, but no thanks. Or God says go, and, okay, I'm terrified, but I'll go. God uses people that do it scared. God uses people that they begin to, to, they take a plane ticket or a train ticket, and they go across the country because God said, go wherever I open a door, and William Seymour goes across the country and does it. There's two types of people in the world, guys. There's those that reflect the temperature of the world around them, and there's those who set the temperature in the room. As believers, we are never called to reflect the culture of the world around us. We are called to change the culture of the world around us through Jesus. Come on, somebody say amen. Those who say yes, they change the world. They're thermostats. Those who say no, they blend in, and they're thermometers. And, and I want to bring us back to that thought of what if... Someone, what a pastor and sister Burke in 1961 said, it's too hard. I've got kids. I don't want to be bivocational. It's too far away. It's, we're not going to do it. What if when it came time to sell the stone church and move to this property, they'd have said, no, we'd still be landlocked downtown with, with no ability for anything like this to happen because we wouldn't have room for it. What if the decisions, the courage, the moments that, that changed your life, my life, the reason we're here right now, what if the people would have said no? Listen, because... Jesus said, I will build my church. Our expectation is that God's going to take us to new levels. Come on, be here today for this. 
I love yesterday. I love our history. But I am geeked about our destiny in a way I've rarely ever known. There is a tomorrow, and I want you to hear this for everybody here. There's a tomorrow that's better than yesterday. There's a tomorrow that's even better than today. There's a tomorrow that is, a, is based on a promise. Look at this. Our expectation is new levels. Our expectation is growth and fruit. Um, we can measure growth in a variety of different ways. But I think growth is the growth of the body of Christ, growth of maturity. I love that we have adequate seating capacity. I want to increase our sending capacity. I want, I want every person in this room to realize you're not here just to be an observer. You're, you're here to be a world changer. You're here to, to affect the destinies. You're here to make sure not only you have a wonderful life, but the people in our community have a wonderful life. You're here to be a part of their story. You're here to be a part of their miracle. You're here to be a part of the answer to their prayers. And our expectation is warfare. I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily... People say, well, I just want God to bless me. Okay, but sometimes he blesses us by, by putting us in a lion's den and then defeating the lions. Sometimes he leads us through fire, not just into fire. Sometimes he wants us to be under fire. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says this. Piano guy, come join me if you would. The, the, it says, we are God's workmanship. We're God's, the word there is poema. We get our modern day word poem. We're God's poem. We're, we're something that he's taking the pen. I'll take the pointy side. He's taking his pen and he's writing our destinies. He's placing it before us. He, he's, he, he didn't create you and then try to find something for you to do. He literally had something for you to do, and then he created you to do it. You are God's workmanship, and you are created in Christ Jesus to do something that affects the generations behind us, that affects what God is calling the church today, that affects nations, that affects your community. We can see why we're here. I, I, and I, I'm telling you, my wife and I, I'm just telling you the truth, that we have been thinking and dreaming and planning. I was in Alabama this summer. I remember summer because it was Alabama, and you know when you're in Alabama in the summer. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like I walked outside the plane, and it just everything just started to shrink. You know, just, I, I just was like, I, I felt like my bulldog looks in July, you know. And I, I was down there, and God just put something on my heart, and I called my wife, and I said, well, I want you to think about and pray about this. And I sent her something. She sent back within 30 seconds, I already have been. It was a confirming word. That, I'm not going to tell you what that is right now, but I'm gonna, we're going to start talking about it as you leave today and as you go in the future. Listen, our, our vision, our commission, it's passionate. If you're not passionate about where we're going, then you don't know where we're going. Can I, can I just say something to you guys about like this Friday night? I'm, this isn't in my notes, but this Friday night, from what I understand, the weather's going to be 54 degrees. The winds are going to be light and variable. It's going to be one of the greatest deer hunting nights of your life. But also that night, there will be two to 4,000 people on these grounds. And we have the power to affect their destiny. I think of as of this morning, we had 42 people signed up to be a part of that. We need 120. You hear what I'm saying? That wasn't a shame on you if you didn't sign up. That's a, how many guys understand the power that God has put inside of you to change a life? I'll tell you something else. Our children's pastor, Les and Denise, that are doing this, I mean, they're, it's their idea. Everybody's doing it, but it's, it was their idea. They got saved at an outreach of this church. They gave their life to Jesus. They're now in full-time ministry. Their kids are in Christian marriages and Christian relationships. They understand the power of one night. They understand how people being there with a hay wagon, people being there with a donut, people being there with a gallon of hot cider, just people being there makes a difference. I wish I could tell you more about, uh, you know, uh, the Stengel family that came because they saw somebody on the 4th of July that was happy, and they said, we don't have that. The float went by. It's an event. It's a parade. It's nothing. 
But they saw it, and, they, and something inside of them said, there's something they have that I don't. As they were downtown, there were some inflatables, and they saw Brett Carlton that was down there with inflatables. He's got the shirt on that says the Freedom Center on it, and he's playing with all the kids and tapping them on the head and spotting them on the butt. Just, you know, and he just, just that guy's happy. And so somehow in an interaction, they found out we were having church the very next day outside. They came to church the next day. Within just a few weeks, they gave their life to Jesus. Now they head up one of our, one of our great ministries, the 50-chair pastor ministry. I'm telling you, listen to me. How many of you guys want to see the world changed? Then if we're going to see the world changed, we have to change. We have to change. We have to engage. It's a passionate vision. It's a compassionate vision. I used to be an addict, and now I'm free from drugs and alcohol by the grace of God. But someone had to tell me God was a God of grace. It has to be moved by our pain. It has to be moved by our passion. And lastly, it has to be compelling. You have to understand it's not an option. It may be your option, but it's their only chance. And so we are going to embrace reaching the lost at the Freedom Center. We're going to embrace going after them. We're not going to blend with the culture. We're going to create a kingdom culture on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to pray for the sick. We're going to watch people be cleansed. We're going to watch people get delivered from debilitating addictions. We're going to see families restored. We're going to watch orphans become parts of families. We're going to feed people that are hungry, clothe people that are naked, and we're going to go to the nations because God has called us to be the church of Jesus Christ. It is our turn. It is our heritage. It is our responsibility. And I, I get to serve during this season. So take a picture of me now so I can see how fat I was 20 years from now, right? I'll look back and say, I used to have some hair. The church has moved forward by those who can see things that are invisible, believe things that are impossible, and touch things that are intangible. That's you. I've done this now for 30 years. We've done it here for almost 24. In March, it'll be 24 years. I don't say that I'm an expert, but I do say this. I can tell you what will happen in your life by what you do next. For those of you that were here, and I'm just, this may be embarrassing to you, and I don't mean to embarrass anyone. It's to honor you. It's not to embarrass you. If you were here when we got here 24 years ago, you saw something that was invisible when you looked at us. You believed something that was impossible when you looked at us. You touched something that was not touchable when you looked at us. And I wonder if you wouldn't do me the honor of if you're here right now and you were here 24 years ago, would you please just stand to your feet? I just wanted to see you for a moment. Can we recognize these few? If it had been for, for John Yinger and Bob Melisser on the pulpit committee, seeing something a 29-year-old 29 29 kid I didn't see on myself, never would have happened. And by the grace of God, someone said, oh, look at that. You're the right person for the job. You know what I feel like? I don't feel like the right person for the job. I feel like Jesus put his arm around a donkey cold and said, you want to freak people out? <laughs> Yo. Everybody stand to your feet, please, if you would. On the way out today, you're going to be given something we've been working very hard on for a very long time. It's, uh, it's the initiatives for 2019. Two weeks from today, we're going to ask you to make a decision, to make a choice. What level you're going to participate in. If you walk out the door right now, sign up, be a part of that outreach, you're making a decision. Uh, when you prayed before service with us, you made a decision. When you, when you put a buck in the offering, you made a decision. When you decided to come here today, you made a decision. When you worshiped, you made a decision. We're asking you to make decisions. The choices we make affect the destinies of multitudes. 
the church is growing. We're not losing. We're winning. And we're, I hate to quote our president, we're winning big. Our win is huge. We've got a huge win. It's incredible. And, and so I, I just I talk to the average Christian. They're kind of discouraged. Like, where's the power? What's going on? It's like awesome stuff. Open your eyes. Open your eyes and see that God is harvesting a field, and there's never been a better time to lead people to Jesus in the history of the world than today. It's our turn. Come on, somebody say it. It's our turn. Come on, somebody say it. It's our turn. It's our turn. Thank God for the generations, but it's our turn. This is our turn. And it all starts with one decision you make right now. If you're here today and you're not following Jesus, all the good stuff starts after that. I'll just be honest with you. Make a million dollars, and what will happen is when you make your millionth dollar, it won't feel much different than when you made your 900th dollar. It's not satisfying. You know, get all the PhDs and all the, that's great. Get all the honors and accolades, it's great. But when you look in the mirror, you'll look back at the same person that, that before they had that degree, that honor, that trophy. It doesn't make you something you're not. Jesus is the only thing, the only one, the only person that can make you something that you're not when he makes you his. Would you close your eyes all over this room right now? Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do a quick work that lasts for all eternity in the hearts of men and women in this room. If you're not right with God, if you came here today not to be told about the history of the church, but to find God, then i got good news for you. God's been looking for you. He's been waiting for you. If you're here and you're not right with God, before you leave this room, I believe God has brought you here to make sure that if you were to walk out of those doors and never be able to walk back in again, your home would be heaven for eternity. If you're not right with God, you know it. You believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, died for my sins and for yours. On the third day, rose from the dead, defeating death, hell and the grave, sin, the flesh, everything that's defeated us, Jesus defeated it, and now extends to you his victory as a gift. As a gift. You don't have to earn, you just have to receive. All over this room right now, if you're not right with God, would you just follow me in a simple prayer? The prayer is simple, but the truth is eternal. Right now, every person, whether you're praying this for the first time, or you're praying this to encourage the people around you, say this with me right now. Jesus, I was wrong. And you're right. Forgive me of every sin. From this day forward, I belong to you. You belong to me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And use me to build your kingdom. Teach me your word. I'll see you soon. Amen. Altar workers are coming forward. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would love it if you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes to come forward as, as altar workers are moving forward now. Ladies and gentlemen, move forward now, please. They're going to be waiting for you. They would love to talk to you, pray with you, get you a Bible, um, hear your story. I'm going to go back to the back room. For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to know who you are. Love to hear your story for your first time, or your tenth time, or your tenth year. It doesn't matter. If we haven't met yet. I'd love to meet you. And outside those doors, there's pictures of our history. There's some vision. You're going to be given those brochures about our destiny. Take them home. All I ask is this: turn every page, and pray about every opportunity, and listen for the still small voice of the Holy Spirit to tell you to go or not to go. If He tells you to go, you should go. If He says don't go, then you should make sure that others go. Help them. If you go farther to the left, we need 80 of you. I know Dina said 70. I'm going to go big. (laughs) 
80 of you to sign up to take a two-hour shift to bless people, meet them, love them, feed them, help them, pray for them, lead them, love them in Jesus' name because we got thousands coming Friday night. Come on, somebody say amen. Live long and prosper. God bless you. Go blue. I had to just once. I'm sorry. I just, it just came out. How did that even happen? I don't even know. God bless you. You need prayer. Come this way.